Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. What's that creaking sound down the hall? Did you feel a sudden chill in the air? And where's that haunting piano music coming from? It's Halloween time. We're sure you're getting into the spirit. Scary noises and all. To celebrate this spine-tingling season, we're talking with four authors who specialize in writing scary stories for kids. Today, you'll hear from Victoria Schwab, Max Brallier, India Hill Brown, and R.L. Stein. We asked them what it is about spooky books that's so compelling for young readers. Each author also shares a spooky read-aloud from their latest book. First, here's Victoria Schwab. Victoria, or V.E. as she is known, is the number one New York Times best-selling author of more than a dozen books for readers of all ages, including City of Ghosts and Tunnel of Bones. Hi, Victoria. Welcome to the program. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. We are delighted to have you, although we're going to have a little bit of scariness today. (laughs) First, tell our listeners about Tunnel of Bones and the Cassidy Blake series. Of course. So Tunnel of Bones is the second novel in the Cassidy Blake series, which began last year with City of Ghosts. Uh, Essentially, Cassidy Blake is a 12-year-old girl who almost drowns and is saved by a boy named Jacob who just happens to be dead. And so when he pulls her out of the river and back into the world of the living, she pulls him out of the land of the dead. And now he's kind of haunting her. Her parents get a television show traveling to the world's most haunted cities, of course, not realizing that their daughter can see ghosts now. And so it is about it's set against the backdrop of her parents' television show as they film in different cities. And Cassidy has to face her own monsters along the way. And so City of Ghosts was in Edinburgh, Scotland, and Tunnel of Bones will be set in Paris, France. All of the ghost stories that show up in the Cassidy Blake series are real legends. So I didn't make up any of them. And so you do find out that maybe you would assume that Paris is less haunted than Edinburgh, but it just is haunted underneath the surface. And so, yes, the catacombs are a primary location for that. Oh, my goodness. All right. I want you to tell us what are some of the scariest, most surprising things about Paris. Well, I think maybe the first thing, as as I said before, I don't think people realize how haunted it is. I think it's a city, you know, its nickname is the City of Light. We don't think of it as a city of shadow. We don't think of it as a place with just as dark a history because it's very good at hiding it beneath the surface. But there are ghost stories about almost every single monument. You, The catacombs might be the most obvious because it's a literal tunnel filled with bones. But there are ghost stories that center around Notre Dame and around the Eiffel Tower and around almost every road and down every alley and bridge. That's the thing you learn when you travel and you ask for ghost stories is that there's, even though I pick one city for each book to focus on, I could write this book in any city or any town or any village in the world. We all have ghost stories. 
Incredible. <laughs> now, how do you do your research, both for this book set in Paris and the one in Edinburgh? Well, I live in Edinburgh, Scotland. So half the reason that I wrote the first book there was as a bit of a, a love letter to this very beautiful, old, extraordinarily haunted city. But I, I go to the places. I spend a lot of time there. I do my research. I do tours. I do a lot of reading. And most importantly, I ask people. I go around and I ask people, do you have any ghost stories? And most people always have one or they'll have one that they heard from a friend from a friend. And so that's really how it started was living in Edinburgh. Everyone you mention ghosts to says, oh, well, I know a ghost story from your cab driver to your <sighs> office mate to your friend at the pub. And I was fascinated by this idea that we all, whether we believe in ghosts or not, have interacted with them in some way. Oh, my goodness. Well, what draws you to them? What's intriguing about ghosts? It's interesting because I, I write a lot of different kinds of books. And most of the time I'm interested in magic. Most of the time I'm interested in the idea that the world is more magical than it is. But I'm also interested in the idea that the world is stranger than it is, that there's a level to it that we don't necessarily perceive or understand. And I'm really interested in the place where magic and reality meet or where in the case of ghost stories, where the veil and the living meet and the idea that things are a bit more porous than we assume. I don't really believe in in things that are lasting. I like the idea that that the lines between our world and another world are dotted instead of straight. You're an incredibly prolific author and you write across many genres for many age groups. This is for middle grade readers. How do you modulate the scary factor for them? It's interesting. As someone who writes for adults as well and teenagers as well, I think the assumption is that my older novels, my novels for older audiences will be scarier and my novels for younger audiences will be light when it's almost always the inverse. My younger audience books are by far my scariest books. And I feel very strongly about that. When I knew I wanted to write a scary story, it was never a question in my mind of making it teenage or adult. I think that children's books and books for young readers are the perfect place to be afraid because it's really when you're learning not only to be a reader, somebody who loves story, but it's a time when you're learning that you have control. As a reader, unlike in reality, you get to pick a book up and set it down. You get to self-modulate how much you're prepared to read. And, and I think we do such a disservice to young readers when we assume that they don't have the strength to choose for themselves. They're very good at putting things down that they're not ready to read yet. But I think it's very important, specifically when it comes to scary stories, to learn the control you have over fear in these books. These are a safe place to be afraid. And if you do feel fear while reading the City of Ghosts books, you can take heart in the fact that you're never alone in that fear. Cassidy and Jacob spend most of the books completely terrified by everything that they're experiencing. So it's never meant to make you feel small if you feel afraid. It's oh. meant to let you know that you're not alone oh if you feel goodness. afraid. And yeah. what do your young readers tell you about City of Ghosts? <laughs> I think they, they love most being afraid. They love how scary it is, but they love that you're never alone. They love... Cassidy's adventures, but they love Cassidy's adventures with Jacob. They never refer to one character without the other. Cassidy and Jacob are as tethered in their minds as the two are in the story. And I love that. I love the idea that you can go on any adventure, no matter how scary, as long as you don't feel alone. I grew up as a very morbid child. I'm not going to really beat around the bush. I had a, I had a sick parent. And when you have a sick parent, uh, you're very aware of death. At a very young age, it kind of haunts you in a far less fun way than the way that Jacob haunts Cassidy. But you're aware of it. And 
I wished I had stories growing up that acknowledged death, not as a metaphor, not through a, a guise. I just wanted to feel like I wasn't alone in my obsession, in my fascination with mortality. And so when I write my books, regardless of what age I'm writing for, because I'm writing for a version of myself, that's really the audience of one that I'm seeking to please. I think, what did I need when I was 11 years old? And I desperately needed a book, one that addressed death, but two, where death wasn't permanent, because that was the thing that scared me so much. And in most of my novels, death and darkness are huge factors, but they're almost never permanent. So that's my wish fulfillment element is that death is this porous thing uh, that we can move back and forth along those lines, whether I'm writing for children with City of Ghosts or for adults with Vicious, there's always a porous quality to it. And I think that was done from a self-comforting place. I want to believe that there's less finality to it, but I also want to have characters who are obsessed with it or fascinated by it or engage with it because I truly didn't see that. And I think that would have made me feel less alone at a time when I was quite afraid of losing people that I love. Oh, could you read a, an excerpt for us? From I would be Pile happy Bones, to. I actually thought probably best to just read you a tiny passage from when Cassidy and Jacob first get down into the Paris catacombs. The bones are everywhere. They line the dirt walls, a sea of skeletons rising almost to the ceilings. They form patterns, rippling designs, a wave of skulls set on a backdrop of femurs, the morbid decoration stacked as high as I can see. Empty eye sockets stare out and jaws hang open. Some of the bones are broken, crumbling, and others look startlingly fresh. If you squint hard enough, the pieces disappear and you're left with a pattern of gray, light, and shadow that could be stone instead of bone. Our shadows dance on the walls, and I take photo after photo, knowing the camera will only capture what's right here, only see the real. But right now, the real is strange enough, strange and chilling and almost beautiful. And horrifying, says Jacob. Don't forget horrifying. Horrifying indeed. Thank you, Victoria. Next up is Max Brawlier. Max is the New York Times bestselling author of the Last Kids on Earth series. Today, he's here to talk about his latest books for young readers, the Mr. Shivers series. Hi, Max. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, we're thrilled to be talking about some scary stories. Now you have a new series coming out on the Acorn line, Mr. Shivers. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I have a new series coming out on the Acorn line, Mr. Shivers. The first book is Mr. Shivers Beneath the Bed and Other Stories. And it's a collection of spooky, um, slightly scary, slightly creepy stories. Each one is um, a little strange. There's a little twist at the end to each one. And it has this really, really um, beautiful art. It does. The stories really are quite creepy and scary. They're for a young audience, though. I wondered how you worked that magic for five to seven-year-olds. I'm very easily scared, so I figure if it scares me, then it's too scary. Um, no, I think I try to keep it like a balance. Like I remember I grew up reading spooky stuff, but never stuff that I would call like extra scary and never anything that was like horror. I just like being like a little bit creeped out, um, like the feeling of... 
I don't know, just sort of like the skin crawling, you know, like sort of like yeah. goosebumps or, um, and like, like, I want like the feeling of like the sound of a thunderstorm or something. And so I try to get that. And I think if there's like just a bit of a twist ending, that's something that can, like a kid can kind of sort of prepare themselves that there's going to be something coming. And yeah, so I think it's just trying to make it like just creepy, 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 but never like over the top. Each page just beckons the reader to keep turning and turning. I wondered what types of scary storylines do you find are most appealing for young readers? I think I like ones that sort of feel like they happen um, or could happen like within this world. They don't feel really too far out there. Like one of the stories in, in here is about um, a boy who leaves his toys out in the rain and gets yelled at by his parents. And I used to be me and I would do that all the time. And so I like that sort of thing where it's like, you know, I could sort of, oh, that's like me, but then there's a sort of twist to it. Or that's like something I would do, but then there's a little bit of a edge. So it's not stuff that's like really like heavy on ghosts or heavy on monsters. I like it to more be feel more like yeah like this is something that on my walk home from school one day maybe like something could happen like this why did you choose to end the stories with no real resolution and kind of a twist that leaves things hanging i i think the twist knowing the twist is coming is always kind of fun you're like what is this gonna like what's gonna happen here and then when there's a little bit of an open-ended feel of like you know, it's not doesn't close quite so neatly. It allows the reader to sort of continue, like the story continues to sort of grow in your mind. I think then, and like kind of lives on and carries on. And you have your own thoughts about it. Like if, if we don't explain like exactly what's beneath the bed, then that's left up to the kid's imagination. And it's like, like it's impossible for me to predict like what's going to be scary for each individual person. So if you can just sort of like if I'm able to open up a little door like in their head to let them think about scary stuff and then then they're gonna have their own scary ideas and things are gonna creep them out in their own way and that gives them sort of the chance to like almost write their own scary stories in their own head I think which is really fun like one of the things that I think first got me into writing and into spooky stuff was when I would read something and then take like a character from a scary story or a setting from a spooky book and like tell myself my own sort of story on situation. Not that I was sitting down like writing fan fiction, but just like remembering and looking back, like I'd be on the bus on the way to school or something and be thinking about like, oh, like what if I was at like the carnival and the carnival was really weird and something happened and a clown came and like just sort of telling myself these stories. And I think that when we leave a story kind of open-ended and with a little bit of a like dun-dun-dun, then like the kid gets to do that themselves. Why is it so important for young readers to experience reading something that's a little scary or creepy? I think that's a great question. I think... I think, first of all, they want to, which is like just the start of it, is that like when I, I speak to librarians and teachers and parents and over and over we hear like, oh, like kids are like, they, there's like, you know, there's a line of kids who want to read like, you know, they, they're asking for something spooky. They're asking for something scary and they're in second grade or first grade and there needs to be that thing to fill that. Um, and then after that, I think there's just something really in a strange, odd, like, backwards way, like, soothing about a scary story. Because when it's done, like, 
you know it's not real. So there's that very like, oh my God, I was so scared. That, that was creepy. That was creepy. But then it's done and it's like, everything's okay. I think the best feeling in the whole world is having like a horrible nightmare. But then when you wake up and you realize it was a nightmare and you're like, oh wait, everything's okay. And like, it's almost, you know, time to get out of bed and the day's going to be a normal day. That's like the best feeling. So that's sort of what I, it's kind of how I think about spooky stories and, and, and creepy stuff is that like once it's done and you like, you can literally close the book and like, it's like contained in there. It almost feels like it's like, you know, like something from Ghostbusters. It's like, okay, the story <laughs> is closed and done. And now I'm just back to my life. So it gives kids a little sense of power, too. Yeah, big time. I think there's like you like if like I always had books when I was a kid where like the there's like some books that the cover was the scariest part. And I would like turn the book over and have to like hide it under my bookshelf or something beneath my bed. Um, and that would always be like it was like a challenge to myself. Like, can I open that book and read it? And then when I would do it, it would feel like, oh my God, like I, I triumphed. Like I did this thing that I didn't think I'd be able to do. And that always felt so good. So I think there's like a sense of like power in that especially like at an early age where like some kids want to be scared and some don't if you're a kid who wants to be scared i think there's something you feel like sort of cool about that like that's like oh like no i like that stuff i'm into that stuff well i'm ready to be scared max will you read an excerpt from mr shivers for us this is the title story beneath the bed it starts with the title beneath the bed kids at school said the old house on the hill was full of ghosts the kids dared me to visit the house. They dared me to visit at night. They dared me to visit every room. I begged my sister Beth to go with me. After I asked five times, she said, okay. Beth and I walked up to the house. The wind howled. Beth said, John, I'm scared. Me too, I said. But if we don't do this, the kids at school will say we're scaredy cats. We walked up the porch steps. The wood moaned like it was warning us to stop. The house felt alive. I pushed open the door. We took deep breaths. Come on, I said, as we stepped inside. In the kitchen, dusty dishes sat on the table. In the living room, a sofa was covered with a sheet. In the library, a book sat open like it was waiting for a reader. There was only one room left to visit, the attic bedroom. Beth and I went up, up, up. Thanks, Max. Listeners, to find out what happens in the attic, be sure to pick up a copy of Mr. Shiver's Beneath the Bed, and Other Scary Stories. Now, we'll hear from India Hill-Brown about her debut novel, The Forgotten Girl. Hi, India. Welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you, and very excited to talk with you. I would love for you to tell our listeners about The Forgotten Girl, your scary new novel for middle graders. Awesome. Okay. So The Forgotten Girl is a story that follows two best friends, Iris and Daniel. And the story starts when Iris actually sneaks out um, with Daniel in the first note of the season and they find a gravestone in their neighborhood. And eventually, after finding that gravestone, it leads to some ghostly encounters. And 
in finding that gravestone is becomes a conversation about um, segregated graveyards and abandoned cemeteries and the idea of being forgotten while you're alive and even in death. Um, I feel like the story is super creepy, but I also feel like there um, are some great topics about friendship and forgiveness and um, just bridging the gap between the older generations and the younger generations. So, I um, mean, there's a history aspect as well, since I talk about segregated graveyards. So, yeah, that's the forgotten girl in a nutshell. Well, also, you did have a real life experience. I think of your grandmother taking you to the family yes. cemetery when you were a child. Yes. That strikes me as foundational and possibly you as a child trying to process what your ancestors had gone through. Is there an element there you could talk about? Absolutely. Um, we actually just visited the cemetery again um, last week. So when I was younger, my grandmother would always take me and my family members to a cemetery called Randolph Cemetery in Columbia, South Carolina. And whenever we would go, she would say, you know, my, my uncle and my great aunt are buried there, but she would always say, um, this cemetery is, seg- is segregated. There are only black people buried here. And on the other side, there are only white people buried there. And she would always say that. And it would always kind of puzzle me because I never really thought about segregation after death. Like I never really thought that it continued as far as segregated cemeteries. And when I got older, and we would continue to go back, I started thinking about it like this would make a really like great ghost story, especially because um, my, the way my uncle and aunt are buried, they're like diagonally from each other. But over time, they kind of, the both of the headstones have kind of turned in a way where they almost <sighs> face each other. And mm-hmm. that was always super creepy to me, but I always thought this would kind of, this could make a great ghost story and also bring awareness to um, segregated graveyards. And I, I used to kind of write myself off like, you know, I'm a scaredy cat. I can't write a scary story. But then one day I was like, I think I can do this. I think I can write a story that's scary and talks about segregation, segregated graveyards. And I think that's where the forgotten girl, that's where I really got the idea for The Forgotten Girl. And I know from your blog that you love, love, love Harry Potter and Anne of Green Gables. (laughs) So you weren't, (laughs) you didn't necessarily read only scary books when you were a kid, of course. Oh, not at all. The funny thing is, um, and I was just talking about some, I was just talking about this with some kids last week. I was actually a very, like, easily frightened child. Um, It was something that like I almost had to work myself up to read scary stories. So whenever I read like a goosebumps book or something, like when I finished it, I would always have like this feeling of conquering a fear um, and scary stories to tell in the dark. And ironically, I guess this is like one of the reasons that I wrote The Forgotten Girl. I like to check out nonfiction books about haunted cemeteries. So I guess that is something that came up with The Forgotten Girl. Um, I like to read about haunted like, grave markers and stuff, even though I would be like chilled to the bone reading about things like that. But it's, it was one thing that I really like to read, but I'm not, it's, it's actually kind of funny because I'm not really the type of person that's like, oh, the super duper scary movie is coming out. 
I have to go see it. Like, I'm not, like, that type of person because I don't know if it's, like, an imagination thing. Like, my imagination runs wild, but I get really easily frightened <laughs> to this day. <laughs> so that gives you a lot of good material for your stories. <laughs> I wonder, you know, why do you think it is helpful or good for young readers to have access to spine-chilling books like yours, especially when they could be facing, you know, some pretty scary truths in their own lives? Mm. I would say, for one, I think even though my book is a scary story, um, I do think that it kind of gets your imagination going. I think that's one of the reasons that I get so easily frightened is because my imagination just keeps going and going. But I feel like that's a good thing. I feel like all children and even adults, we should work really hard to preserve our imagination and to to continue to keep wonder in our lives because I feel like if we don't have that imagination, that wonder, things may start to look very bleak. I feel like if you have imagination, if you have wonder, um, that will eventually lead to having hope. And I feel like in this world, hope is something that we all need um, to keep going every day. I would love for you to pick up in that first chapter, Iris and Daniel have snuck out of their houses, the town is quiet, and Iris falls back, they're making snow angels. Maybe pick up and just read aloud for our listeners so they can get a sense of this scary story. Sure. Daniel reached out his hand and pulled her up. Iris shook the ceiling off and smiled. She was proud of her work. I've never made a snow angel this good. She looked at Daniel to agree, but he was leaning over, frowning at her angel. What's that? He asked, pointing at it. Look. She peered more closely at the angel, the way her dress flared around her feet, her arms frozen in midair as if she'd finally gotten their attention. There was something buried, just barely, under the snow angel's chest, where her heart would be. It glistened in the moonlight. They bent over and, trying not to disturb the angel, worked together to uncover it. Their hands froze in midair, mimicking the angels. Daniel gasped. Iris, that... Iris stared down at the crumbling stone, a gust of cold air pushing past her, forcing her to speak. A grave. The wind whistled as they looked down at the marker and the angels surrounding it. She almost looked like she was guarding it. Iris felt the sensation of someone standing behind her and whipped around just in case. She thought she saw something flicker in the distance and she forced herself to calm down. It must be one of the twinkling lights from the Christmas house. Iris shivered. It felt even colder, but surely that was because they had stopped running around. What does it say? She whispered, her voice cutting through the silence. Daniel wiped the falling snow away from his glasses, took a breath, and knelt down by the small gray square. He was shivering, too. Avery Moore, rest in peace, darling. May 5th, 1945 to September 7th, 1956. Daniel stared at the grave marker for a second his lips moving as if he was counting under his breath, then looked up at Iris, his eyes even bigger behind his glasses. She was our age. Iris shivered again. They were silent, both probably thinking the same thing. What happened to her? Why was she buried here? Suddenly, the snow didn't feel fun anymore. It was too dark out, too cold, too quiet. They felt too far from their houses. I'm cold, they both blurted out at the same time. 
startling each other. Their voices seemed to carry farther than they should have on the wind. Iris, let's go back. Daniel scrambled to stand up and grabbed Iris's hand again, first walking, then running through both clearings. The trees stood tall and dark, ominously, as they passed by. The snow fell heavier, no longer looking like frosting. The white branches were now skeletal hands, waving them backwards. Iris could almost feel it, a pull, not wanting them to leave. I'll see you tomorrow, Daniel breathed, before letting her hand go and slipping through the back door to his house. Iris slipped through her own, forgetting to wipe her feet on the mat outside, not so carefully walking up the stairs and throwing all her wet clothes into her closet. The darkness felt thick, the same way it had by the little clearing, like it followed her here. Still shivering, she trained her eyes on the nightlight, but the small glow gave her little calm. She began her usual ritual of looking around to prove to herself that the pile of clothes in the corner wasn't an animal, that the tap, tap, tap in the window right now was just ice and not someone trying to get her to look up. But when she glanced at the window, it was into the black, round eyes of a little girl. Ooh, thank you, India. This is such a great story. It has all the elements. Last but not least, here's the master of fright himself, R.L. Stein, creator of the beloved best-selling Goosebumps series. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the program. Well, how nice to be here. We are talking about the character of Slappy. Why do you think he what is... What is it about Slappy? Right. What, what makes, that's my question. What, makes what him... is it? What makes him now, so memorable and creepy? Why is that? I don't know. Can I be really honest? I don't get it about Slappy. <laughs> I don't know why he's scary. Everyone loves him. Everyone, I mean, Slappy's the star, right? The books are called Goosebumps Slappy World. And he's, you know, he's everywhere. And so I keep, I think I've written 14 Slappy books now. That's a lot of books yeah. about a dummy that comes to life. Right. Well, you know, has... I even killed him. I killed him once. I wrote the ghost of Slappy. I killed him off, but I had to bring him back. Last, uh, last Halloween, a year ago, I was giving a talk in Toronto, and I looked out in the audience, and there were 40 kids dressed as Slappy <gasps> in the audience. And I realized that I had sold more red bow ties than anyone in Canada. <laughs> I'd probably sold every red bow tie in Canada, right? And I realized I was in the wrong business. <laughs> I, I should have been in the bow tie business. <laughs> but what a thrill for me that every Halloween now, thousands of kids go out dressed as Slappy. It's amazing. Yeah. They all send me their pictures on Twitter and on Instagram, and they're all out there as Slappy. I mean, it's, I it, I never get tired of that. It's very exciting. It truly is, and so you have no idea why. No. Well, I'd have some ideas, but I don't know. He doesn't scare me. Oh. <gasps> you know? But I was always, when I was a kid, I was fascinated with puppets, and I actually had a ventriloquist dummy when I was a kid. But I always thought they were funny. And I think, I sort of write Slappy as an insult comedian. 
<laughs> the, yeah, the reason I like writing him so much is that he's so rude, and I get to write all these great insults, and uh, that's what I enjoy about it. But I don't, I don't know the whole idea of a something lifeless coming to life. I guess is it can be very terrifying. See, now I think invisible is scary. Oh, that book was terrifying. Scary. What if you woke up one morning and no one could see you? That's terrifying. To me, that's more terrifying than being a dummy. Okay, so we might not be able to pinpoint the reason, but we know that readers can't get enough of Slappy. Could you read from your latest Slappy World book, Revenge of the Invisible Boy? Welcome to my world. Yes, it's Slappy World. You're only screaming in it. Ha ha ha. It's such a shame people don't have words to describe me. I mean, words like brilliant and talented and good-looking don't really do it, do they? But go ahead. Feel free to use them anyway. Ha ha ha. Do you know how smart I am? Of course you don't. I'm so smart, the dictionary asked me to define it. Some people say I'm evil. That's ridiculous. Does it mean I'm evil just because I do horrible things day and night? No way. Actually, I'm a nice guy. You know how nice I am? Last week, I rescued a bird that had fallen out of a tree. I carefully picked it up and carried it home. It was delicious. Well, I have a story for you, and naturally, it's a scary story. The story's told by a boy named Frankie Miller. Frankie and his friends are really into magic. They love to watch magicians and perform tricks. Frankie is about to learn just how dangerous some magic tricks can be. Want to get a head start on the story? Start screaming now. I call the story Revenge of the Invisible Boy. It's just one more terrifying tale from Slappy World. Thank you, Bob. I am here to say that Frankie is in for the terror of his life, as I was when I read the book. It's it's so epic, I have to say. Now, fans have been getting scared by Goosebumps for more than 25 years, which is pretty crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. Who would believe it? <laughs> it's a lot of books, I know. I never expected to be, still be doing Goosebumps, but it's what a thrill for me. And now, I, you know, I get to scare so many generations. I've got 35-year-olds coming up to me, and they bring their kids, and their kids are reading Goosebumps. It's, I, how lucky am I, really? Is that what you hope stays with them, that feeling of fear and that frisson of their spine, or what is it? Oh, I, what I really hope is that they say, boy, that was entertaining. I want to read another book. That was really entertaining. I can be just as entertained by reading a book as, as doing anything else. That's, you know, they're yes. really about reading motivation. There is a serious, I'm not a serious person, but there is a serious purpose <laughs> behind, behind Goosebumps, and that's getting people to read. And I never get tired. I was just at Comic-Con this weekend, and all these people coming up and say, thank you for getting me to read. Your books were the first ones I ever read. Thank you. Thank you. I heard that all day yeah. long at Comic-Con this weekend. Well, what were you like as a kid? Like, were you easily scared? I was a very fearful kid and very shy. And um, my family was very poor. We had no money at all. And we lived on the edge of a very wealthy community. And I went to school with a lot of very 
upper middle class and rich kids, and I had, you know, I'm there wearing my cousin's hand-me-down clothes. So I always felt like an outsider. And I think it's one reason I like just staying in my room and typing, just, you know, by myself yeah. and creating my own world. I, I always, always felt like an outsider. And I had a lot of fears, I was, which is a horrible way to grow up and a right. horrible way to be a kid. But it turned out lucky later that <laughs> I could remember all those fears. I could, you know, dredge that all back up and put it into my book. So it turned out to be a good thing. Well, what's your secret for scaring kids? The secret is they're not that scary, for one thing. And the secret is that they know exactly what they're going to get. They're going to have normal kids. They're going to face incredible, some creepy things. It's going to be funny as well as scary. They know there are going to be some twists and surprises. And it's all going to end up fine. They know there's going to be a happy ending. And they know they're safe reading it while they're reading it. And I, that, to me, I think that's why. Well, that's a perfect reason, Bob. Thanks so much for coming by the studio today. Thanks to all of our guests, Victoria, Max, India, and Bob, for sharing their scary stories. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the books we discussed today, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Happy reading and happy Halloween. Special thanks to producer Mackenzie Cutrazula sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.